Chapter Ten, Part Two of the Metamorphosis or Golden Ass. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Ferreira. The Metamorphosis or Golden Ass by Apuleius, translated by Thomas Taylor, Chapter Ten, Part Two. At length, a certain buffoon who was present said, "Give some wine to this guest." To which the master assenting answered, Knave, you have not spoken absurdly, for it is very possible that our comrade will also willingly drink a cup of mead. And he said, Come hither, boy, wash well that golden cup, fill it with mead and offer it to my parasite, and at the same time admonish him that I have previously drank to him. After this, the great expectation was exciting among the guests. Nevertheless, I, not being at all disturbed, drank at one draught all that was contained in that most capacious cup leisurely and in a sufficiently pleasant manner, incurvating the extremity of my lip in the shape of a tongue. A clamor was raised, through all of them, with one according voice, drinking my health. Lastly, the master, being excessively joyful, and having called the servants that bought me, ordered that four times the sum which they paid for me should be given to them, and he delivered me to a certain person who had been his slave, but was now manumitted, to whom he was very much attached, and who was very rich, and desired him to pay me every requisite attention. This man nourished me in a sufficiently humane and kind manner, and, that he might render himself more acceptable to his patron, most studiously furnished him with delight through my pleasantry. And, in the first place, indeed, he taught me to sit down at table, leaning on my elbow, afterwards to wrestle and to dance, my forefeet being elevated, and, which was especially admirable, to use signs instead of words, so that I could indicate what I wished by raising, and what I did not wish by declining my head. He also taught me, when I was thirsty, to look at the cup-bearer, and to ask for drink by alternately closing my eyes. And to all these things I was very readily obedient, which, indeed, I should have done, though no one had shown me how to do them. But I was fearful, lest, if I should happen to perform them, after the manner of men, without a master, most would think it portended sinister events, and that I, as a monster and prodigy, should lose my head and be given for fat provender to vultures. And now my fame was spread abroad publicly, by which I rendered my master illustrious and famous, through my wonderful arts. This, said the people, is the man who has an ass for his guest and associate, an ass that wrestles and dances, that jests and understands the language of men, and indicates what it means by nods. It is now, however, requisite that I should inform you, though I ought to have done it in the beginning, who that Tiasus was, or whence he originated, for this was the name of my master. The country in which he was born was Corinth which city ranks as the chief of all the province of Achaea, and, as he had gradually obtained all the honors which his pedigree and dignity demanded, he had been appointed to the office of quinquennial magistrate. In order, therefore, that he might act conformably to the splendor of that office, he had promised that he would exhibit, during the space of three days, the spectacle of prize-fighting, but he had still more amply extended his munificence. Lastly, he had then also come to Thessaly, through the desire of public glory, in order to procure from thence the most noble wild beasts and famous gladiators. And now, having bought and disposed of everything according to his wish, he was preparing to return home. Despising, however, his own most splendid chariots, and undervaluing his beautiful coaches and wagons, which were drawn along empty at the extremity of his train, some of them being covered and others open, neglecting also the Thessalonian horses and his other Gallic laboring beasts, by which a generous offspring bears testimony to the precious dignity of its origin. Despising and neglecting all these, he rode most lovingly on me, who was decorated with golden trappings, dyed saddles, purpled coverings, silver bridles, painted girths, and very sonorous little bells, and sometimes he spoke to me in the most courteous language. 
Among many other things also which he said, he professed to be in the highest degree delighted that he possessed in me at one and the same time a companion and a carrier. But when, having finished our journey, partly by land and partly by sea, we came to Corinth, a great crowd of citizens ran to meet us, not so much for the purpose of doing honor to Tiasus, as from a desire of seeing me. For so great a rumor had pervaded that city about me, that I was the source of no small gain to my governor, who, when he perceived many longings with great desire to see my sports, he shut the door and introduced each of them separately, having first received money from them, by which means he was accustomed daily to collect no small sums. In that assembly there was a certain matron, powerful and opulent, who, after the manner of the rest, having purchased a sight of me, and from thenceforth was delighted with my multiform pastimes, fell, at length, gradually, through her continual admiration, into a wonderful desire of enjoying me, and, not applying any remedy to her insane lust, ardently waited for my embraces, like an asinine pacifae. At length she prevailed on my keeper, for a great sum of money, to let me lie with her for one night. But that knave, in order that he might drive advantage from me, being only satisfied with his own gain, assented. And now, the laborious and wakeful night being finished, the woman withdrew from my embraces, avoiding the conscious testimony of the light, and making a contract with my keeper for some future night, at the same price. Nor did he unwillingly accede to her voluptuous desires, partly induced by the very ample reward which he received from her, and partly through the opportunity afforded him of preparing a new spectacle for his lord, to whom, without delay, he unfolded the whole scene of our lust. But he, having magnificently rewarded his manumitted servant, destined me to be shown in public. And, because that egregious wife of mine could not be publicly connected with me, on account of her dignity, nor any other could be found for the same purpose, a certain vile woman, who had been sentenced by the prefect to be devoured by wild beasts, was procured, for a great sum of money, to have connection with me in the enclosure of the theatre, in the sight of all the spectators. Of this woman I have heard the following history. She had a husband, a young man, whose father, undertaking a journey, ordered his wife, who was the mother of that same young man, in whom he left oppressed with the burden of pregnancy, that if she brought forth an infant of the inferior sex, she should immediately cause that of which was delivered to be slain. But she, during the absence of her husband, having brought forth a girl, and being moved by the pious affection naturally inherent in a mother, revolted from the mandate of her husband, and delivered it to be nourished by one of her neighbors. Her husband also now having returned, she told him that she had been delivered of a daughter, and that she was destroyed. But as soon as the flower of age required a nuptial day should be appointed for the virgin, and as she could not give a dowry suitable to the parentage of her daughter, unknown to her husband, she did that which she could alone do. Namely, she unfolded the secret to her son, which had hitherto been concealed in silence. For she was very much afraid, lest he, by some accident, erring through the impulse of juvenile ardor, should ignorantly have connection with his sister, who also was ignorant that he was her brother. But this young man, who was remarkably pious, and who religiously obeyed the mandates of his mother, and performed the duties due to his sister, delivered the arcana of his house to the custody of venerable silence, exhibiting only by his countenance a vulgar benevolence toward his sister. And he undertook in such a way to perform the necessary duty of consequinity, that he received her into the protection of her own house, as if she had been some desolate neighboring virgin, and deprived of the guardian care of her parents. And soon after, he placed her with a certain most dear associate of his, and most liberally bestowed on her a dowry from his own property. But these things being well disposed, and in the best manner, and with all sanctity, could not escape the deadly knot of fortune, by whose impulse a cruel rivalship immediately directed its course to the house of the young man. And the same wife of his, who now was condemned to wild beasts for these very crimes, began first to entertain a suspicion of the girl, as the rival of her bed, and a harlot. In the next place to defeat her, 
and in the third place to contrive the most cruel snares for her destruction. In the last place she devised the following wicked stratagem. Having stolen the ring of her husband, she went into the country, and from thence sent a servant who was faithful indeed to her, but perfectly hostile to fidelity herself, and told him to inform the girl that the young man was gone to her village, and desired her to come to him, and added that she was to go alone, with all possible celerity, and without any attendant and, lest any doubt should happen to arise in her mind about the propriety of going, she delivered to him the ring which she had taken from her husband, which, being shown, would give credibility to his words. But she, complying with the mandate of her brother, for she alone knew that he was her brother, and having also inspected his seal which was shown to her, strenuously hastened to go unattended as she was desired to do. As soon, however, as through the deception of extreme fraud she fell into the snares which were prepared for her, then that egregious wife, being insanely excited by the stimulus of libidinous fury, in the first place indeed having stripped her naked, whipped her even to the extremity of torment, and afterwards, though she explained the things it really was, and also exclaimed, that she in vain boiled over with indignation, through conceiving her to be a harlot, and frequently repeated the name of her brother, she slew her by thrusting a burning torch into her private parts, as if she had lied and invented all that she had told her. Then the brother and her husband, being excited by the news of her cruel death, flew to her, and having mourned the fate of the girl with various lamentations, committed her to the grave. Nor could the young man endure with equanimity such a miserable death of his sister, by her by whom it was by no means equitable it should have been occasioned, but, being most profoundly grieved and wholly possessed by the noxious fury of the most vehement bile, he began from that time to burn with a raging fever, so that for him also a remedy seemed to be necessary. But his wife, who some time ago had lost the name, together with the fidelity of a wife, went to a certain physician well known for his perfidy, who, being famous for his victories in many contests, could enumerate great trophies which his right hand had obtained, and immediately promised him fifty sestertia, in order that he, indeed, might sell poison so efficacious as to destroy in a moment, but that she might buy the death of her husband. This being done, she and the physician pretended that the most excellent potion which they had brought, and which the more learned call sacred, was necessary for mitigating pains of the viscera, and carrying off the bile. But, in its stead, they substituted a potion sacred to the health of proserpine. And now the physician extended to the sick man with his own hand, the well-tempered cup, his own family and some of his friends and kindred being present. But that audacious woman, in order that she might destroy the physician, the partner of her guilt, and at the same time be enriched by the money which she had promised, retaining the cup in the sight of all of them, said, O best of physicians, you shall not give this potion to my most dear husband till you have drank a good part of it yourself, for how do I know whether a noxious poison may not be concealed in it? And this is a thing which should by no means offend you, who are a man so prudent and learned, that I, as a religious wife, being solicitous for the safety of my husband, perform a necessary duty of piety. The physician, being suddenly agitated by the desperate audacity of the cruel woman, and totally deprived of all counsel and of every opportunity of thinking, through the shortness of the time, drank largely of the potion, before he had raised any suspicion of his evil conscience by any trepidation or delay. And the young man, following his example, took the cup and drank what was offered to him. The present business being thus transacted, the physician prepared to return home with the greatest celerity, in order that he might extinguish the deadly power of the poison which he had taken by a salutiferous potion. But the barbarous woman, persisting in the same sacrilegious obstinacy as that which she had adopted from the first, would not suffer him to depart from her the breadth of a nail, till, as she said, the effect of the medicine was evidently proved, in consequence of the potion being distributed through the whole body. But being much, and for a long time, wearied by his prayers and earnest entreaties, 
she at length scarcely permitted him to depart. In the meantime his most inward parts attracted the occult destruction which raged through all his viscera, and, at last, he with great difficulty came to his own house very ill, and now oppressed with a somnolent heaviness. Scarcely also being able to narrate every particular, he ordered his wife to demand, at least, the promised reward of a double death. And thus that most illustrious physician, being destroyed by violence, gave up the ghost. Nor did that young man live any longer than the physician, but perished by a similar kind of death, amidst the fictitious and false tears of his wife. And he, being now buried after a few days, had intervened, during which funeral rites are performed to the dead, the wife of the physician came and demanded the money which was due for the double death. But the woman, always like herself, overpowering the real form of fidelity and exhibiting only its image, mildly answered her and promised everything liberally and abundantly, and agreed to pay the stipulated sum without delay, only adding that she wished she could give her a little of that potion for the purpose of accomplishing the business she had begun. This the wife of the physician, inveigled by the many snares of the most wicked frauds, readily consented to do and, that she might render herself more acceptable to the opulent woman, hastily returned home, and immediately afterwards delivered her the whole box of poison. Having therefore now obtained the grand instrument of wickedness, she extended far and wide her sanguinary hands. She had a little daughter by the husband whom she had lately killed, and she was very indignant that the laws would necessarily give to this little one the inheritance of her father. Greedily desiring also the whole patrimony of her daughter, she waited only for an opportunity of destroying her. Being certain, therefore, that mothers received the immature inheritances of their deceased children, she showed herself to be such a parent as she had proved herself to be a wife, and pretending to prepare a dinner, in consequence of a circumstance that had occurred, she attacked with the same poison both the wife of the physician and her own daughter. But that deadly venom immediately consumed the slender life and delicate and tender viscera of the little girl. The wife of the physician, however, while the tempest of the detestable potion wandered through her lungs with its noxious windings, first suspecting what the thing was, and afterwards, through the oppression of her breath, being now more certain that her suspicion was right, went to the house of the prefect of the province, and, with a great clamor, imploring his assistance, a tumult of the people also being excited, in consequence of the disclosure she was about to make of such barbarous wickedness, she occasioned both the house and the ears of the prefect to be immediately opened. And now, having accurately narrated all the atrocities of this most cruel woman, from the beginning, being suddenly seized with a dark vertigo of the mind, she compressed her lips, which were still half open, and having for a long time produced a crashing noise by the gnashing of her teeth, she fell lifeless before the feet of the prefect. But he, though he was a man accustomed to things of this kind, would not suffer the multiform wickedness of this execrable sorceress to flag by a languid delay, but immediately ordered the chambermaids of the woman to be brought before him, and by the force of torments exhorted from them the truth. He also sentenced her to a punishment, which was indeed less than she deserved, namely, that she should be cast to wild beasts, because he could not find any other torment so adapted to the enormity of her guilt. With such a woman as this it was determined that I should be publicly connected, as if I had been lawfully married to her. And, being very much vexed, I waited with great anxiety for the day of the spectacle, being frequently willing to destroy myself with my own hand, rather than be defiled by coming into contact with such an abandoned woman, or be defamed by the disgrace of a public spectacle. But, as I was deprived of human hands, and was also destitute of fingers, I could by no means draw a sword with my round and imperfect hoof. However, I consoled myself, in my extreme misery, with a slender hope, because the spring now beginning to appear would paint everything with florid buds, and would now clothe the meadows with a purple splendor, and roses would then burst forth, exhaling the sweetest odors, which would restore me to my former Lucius, which is to say, my pristine form. Behold, the day destined to the spectacle was present, 
and I was led into the arena, the people following me with triumphant applause. And while the beginning of the spectacle was dedicated to the sportive dances of the players, I, in the meantime, being placed before the gate, gladly fed on the very flourishing grass which germinated at the entrance, now and then also refreshing my inquisitive eyes with the most agreeable prospect of the spectacle, because the gate was open. For boys and virgins flourishing in florid youth, conspicuous for their beauty, in splendid garments, acting as they walked, dancing the Greek Pyrrhic dance, and disposed in rank, performed graceful circuits, now turning round in an orb like a wheel, now connected by their hands in an oblique order, and afterwards being disposed into the form of a wedge with a square aperture, and then becoming separated into two troops. But after the clangor of the terminating trumpet had dissolved the manifold circuits of the reciprocal movements, the hangings being removed and the curtains folded, a representation of the fable of Paris was prepared, as follows. There was a wooden mountain made in imitation of that celebrated mountain which Homer calls Ida. This was of a lofty structure, was planted with grass plats and living trees, and from its highest top emitted river water, from a fountain flowing through the contrivance of the artist. A few goats cropped the grass, and a certain young man, excellently clothed with barbaric vestments dependent from his shoulders, and having his head covered with golden tiara after the manner of the Phrygian shepherd Paris, pretended to be skilled in the pastoral discipline. A beautiful boy also was present, naked, except that a robe adapted to a child covered his left shoulder. This boy was every way conspicuous for his yellow hair, among which little golden wings associated by a similar alliance were prominent, and the caduceus and the wand indicated that the boy was Mercury. He, running with a dancing motion, and carrying in his right hand an apple gilt with spangles, extended it to him who represented Paris, and announced to him by signs the mandate of Jupiter. Immediately after, elegantly receding, he departed from the view. A girl succeeded, of a beautiful face, and resembling the goddess Juno, for her head was begirt with a white diadem, and she also carried a scepter. Another virgin entered, whom you might believe to be Minerva, having her head covered with a fulgid helmet, and the helmet itself was covered with an olive-colored crown. She also lifted up a shield, which is to say the Aegis, and shook a spear, and appeared to be such as she is when she fights. After these another female entered, of surpassing beauty, representing Venus by the decoration of her divine color, and such as Venus was when she was a virgin, exhibiting perfect beauty in a body naked and uncovered, except that her private parts were inumbrated by a thin silken garment, the fringe of which the busy wind, in a sufficiently amorous manner, now wantonly blew back, that, being removed, the flower of her age might be manifest, and now luxuriantly blew upon that, by close adherence, the pleasure which the members, the private parts, were formed to give, might be delineated. But the color itself of the goddess was various to the view, for her body was white because she descended from heaven, and her silken garment was azure because she emerged from the sea. And now the several virgins who represented goddesses were surrounded by their attendants, Juno indeed by Castor and Pollux, whose heads were covered with round helmets, conspicuous by the stars which glittered on their summits. But these representatives of the twin brothers were young actors. This virgin, Juno, proceeding with a tranquil and unaffected gesticulation, conformably to the various modulations of the wantonly sounding flute, promised the shepherd, by modest signs, that she would bestow on him the empire of all Asia if he had judged to her the palm of beauty. But two boys, who represented terror and fear, the armor-bearing attendants of the warlike goddess, dancing with drawn swords, surrounded that virgin who, by the arms with which she was adorned, represented Minerva. And a piper who was behind her played a Dorian, which is to say a warlike tune, and mingling sharp tinkling with flat sounds, excited the vigor of brisk dancing after the manner of a trumpet. This girl, by tossing her head, looking with threatening eyes, and walking with a quick and intorted step, 
signified to Paris by her cheerful gesticulation that, if he gave to her the victory of beauty, he should become, through her assistance, brave and illustrious by the trophies of war. Then Venus stood gracefully in the very middle of the scene, sweetly smiling, accompanied by the great applause of the spectators, and surrounded by a crowd of rejoicing boys. You would say that those smooth and fair boys were cupids, and real cupids, who had just then descended from heaven or emerged from the sea. For they admirably resembled them, by their small wings, their little arrows, and the rest of their external habiliments. They also bore splendid torches before their mistress, as if she had been going to some nuptial banquet. Unmarried girls likewise, a graceful progeny, were there assembled. Here the most pleasing graces, there the most beautiful hours, who, rendering their goddess propitious, by throwing flowers made into garlands or loose, formed the most elegant choir, and soothed the goddess of pleasure with the hair of the spring. Now pipes with many perforations sweetly send forth Lydian modulations. And, while they delightfully allure the minds of the spectators, Venus, in a far more delectable manner, began placidly to move herself, and to proceed with a gentle and slow step, the spine of her back at the same time lightly undulating, and her head gradually moving, and thus she conformed her delicate gestures to the soft sound of the pipes. At one time also she gently winked, and at another sharply threatened with her eyes, and sometimes danced with them alone. This girl, as soon as she came into the presence of the judge, which is to say of the scenic Paris, seemed to promise by the motion of her arms that she would give to Paris a wife of surpassing beauty, Helen, and like herself if he would prefer her to the other goddesses. Then the Phrygian young man delivered with a willing mind to the girl the golden apple which he held in his hands as an indication that she had conquered. Why, therefore, do you wonder, O most vile heads, or rather forensic cattle, or still more properly gowned vultures, if all judges now sell their decisions for money? For even in the most remote periods of antiquity, favor could corrupt the judgment which was agitated between gods and men, and a young man who was a rustic and a shepherd, being elected a judge by the decision of the great Jupiter, sold the first judicial decision for the lucre of lust, accompanied likewise by the destruction of all his race. Thus also by Hercules another judgment posterior to this was given between the illustrious leaders of the Greeks, either when Palamedes, who excelled in erudition and science, was condemned by false accusations as a traitor, or when the mendicant Ulysses was preferred to the mighty Ajax, who was preeminent in military prowess. And of what kind was that judgment which was the decision of the law-giving Athenians, who were a wise people and the master of all science? Was not that divinely prudent old man Socrates, whom the Delphic god preferred for his wisdom to all mortals, circumvented by the fraud and envy of a most iniquitous faction, as if he had been a corrupter of youth, though he restrained them as with a bridle? Was not he destroyed by the noxious juice of a pestilent herb, leaving to his fellow-citizens the stain of perpetual infamy? since even now the most excellent philosophers choose his most holy sect before all others, and swear in his name for the greatest and most earnest desire of beatitude. Lest, however, someone should blame this impetus of my indignation, thus thinking with himself, Behold now, shall we suffer an ass to philosophize to us? I shall again return to the narration from whence I digressed. After that judgment of Paris was finished, Juno, indeed, and Minerva departed from the theatre, sad and enraged, and showed by their gestures the indignation which they felt from being rejected. But Venus, full of joy and hilarity, exhibited her gladness by dancing with all her choir. Then wine, mixed with crocus, burst forth on high from the summit of the mountain, through a certain latent tube, and flowing in scattered streams sprinkled as it fell, and an odoriferous shower, the goats that fed round it till being dyed into a better form, they changed their proper whiteness into a saffron colour. And now, the whole theatre exhaling a sweet odour, a gulf of the earth absorbed that wooden mountain. 
when, behold, a certain soldier ran through the middle of the street in order to bring to the people now demanding it that woman from the public prison, who, as I have said, was condemned to wild beasts on account of her multiform wickedness, and detained to be my illustrious bride. What was intended also to be our genial bed could be most distinctly seen, for it was transparent, being made from the Indian tortoise, was tumid with a plumous heap, and floored with a silken coverlet. But I, besides the shame of being publicly connected, and besides the contagion of a wicked and polluted woman, was also in the highest degree tormented with the fear of death, thus thinking with myself, that in the venereal embrace, while we were adhering to each other, whatever wild beast should be sent in to the destruction of the woman, it would not be so prudent and sagacious, or so tutored by art, or so frugal and temperate, as to lacerate the woman who was placed by my side, and spare me as one uncondemned and innoxious. Being therefore solicitous, not for my modesty, but for my life, while liberty was granted to me of indulging my own thoughts, my master being intent on aptly preparing the bed, and all his servants being partly occupied in hunting, and partly attentive to the voluptuous spectacle. No one believing that so mild an ass required to be so attentively guarded, I gradually withdrew myself by an occult flight. And when I arrived at the next gate, I hurried away with most rapid steps. When also, with great celerity, I had travelled over six thousand entire paces, I arrived at Kentria, which city, indeed, is said to be the most noble economy of the Corinthians. But it is contiguous to the Aegean and Saronic Sea, where also there is a port, which is a most safe receptacle for ships, and is very populous. Avoiding, therefore, the crowd, and choosing the solitary shore, near to the erectation of the waves, there, stretched on a most soft bed of sand, I refreshed my weary body. For the chariot of the sun had declined to the last boundary of day, and sweet sleep overpowered me, when I gave myself to the evening repose. End of chapter 10, part 2